how long? Eternal peace and security promised to David in Psalms 2 and 72, etc., is fulfilled. And secondly, why does God's anger persist? He goes on to comment, book three alternates between confident assurances of the security and prosperity of Zion on the one hand, there's the happy trip home as it were, and testimonies of her utter devastation on the other hand. The reality of the trip home as it was. You know, as I read Psalm 79, um, and I'm sure as you read those first several verses, I hope you're horrified. It reminded me a little bit of um, going and visiting the Holocaust Museum in Nanjing uh, in China, where they have testimonies of uh, the Japanese invasion of what was then the capital of China. And the Japanese army was just kind of in a, in a, in a, um, in a craze and they, they, they murdered the citizens, uh, they raped the women, uh, they killed the children, and the testimonies of some of the um, survivors of that uh, Holocaust, uh, their testimonies are enough to turn your stomach. Um, bayoneting children and flinging them into a pile of dead bodies, uh, mothers um, bleeding to death, uh, children living with the horror of seeing their, their parents uh, speared. It's uh, truly one of the most horrific instances in all of the 20th century, ranking along with that that uh, took place um, in World War II itself. So part of the problem with this psalm is that it lives in a neighborhood where exactly the opposite If you turn to Psalm 76, for example, there Psalm 76 talks about how David is going to rule in Jerusalem forever, how his kingdom is going to endure and last, and Jerusalem is going to be secure. And here Jerusalem is lying in ruins. All of the citizens are strewn around the city um, and lying uh, as, dead, as dead corpses, as it were. So it's a grim picture, and it brings up a certain amount of cognitive dissonance. And as I was thinking about how to apply this psalm, I couldn't help but think that there's kind of a similar situation with us today New Testament scholars for a long time have been reminding us, very helpfully I think, that the kingdom of God consists of the already, you know, the exciting bits that have come with Jesus and the revelation of Jesus and uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the not yet. There's part of the kingdom of God that, yet, that is yet to be fulfilled. And so, um, in a way, you and I, like the psalmists, we live between uh, the already, which is good, which is promising, and the not yet, where we long for the fullness of God's kingdom to be manifest in our midst. So we too rather live in that situation. It's described well in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, when uh, the disciples said to the resurrected Jesus, Lord, is this the time that you're going to return, restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' response was, it's not for you to know the times or the occasions. Uh, but the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And you will bear witness in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, not yet, guys. You're, you're in this no-man's territory between what's been fulfilled and what is yet to be fulfilled. And I'm sure any one of us who's experienced disappointment in life knows what it's like to feel like, Lord, I'm a Christian. Things are supposed to be great. Why do I feel so miserable? Why are these things happening to me when all of the things that seem to be written, at least in a lot of places in the Gospels, 
speak of a much happier territory. So with that introduction, I want briefly to look at three ways in which we can cope with those unfulfilled expectations, those disappointments, whether they be as menial as uh, uh, a family instance, a family trip gone awry, or as horrific as uh, something like um, a holocaust. And as you look at the Psalms in the neighborhood of Psalm 79, I think it's possible to discern three ways. Why is it that preachers always come up with three ways? I don't know. It just kind of works out that way. There are three ways in which we can cope with unfulfilled expectations prior to the fulfillment of God's kingdom. And to be a, a ridiculously traditional preacher, because I actually find it helpful, I like alliterations, I have R's underlined. And if that bothers you, I beg your forgiveness, but I'm hoping it might be helpful to some of you. Well, the first thing that we can do to cope with the cognitive dissonance between all that we know that the kingdom will be when God fulfills his promises in the future with the second coming of Christ and with the new heaven and the earth, so on, and the devastation that we often experience in this messy world that we currently live in, is to do what the psalmists do in several places in this very same neighborhood. And that is to remember God's past acts of mercy and power. Now, in Psalm 79, the psalmist doesn't remember God's past uh, acts of mercy and power. But in the neighborhood, this is a coping mechanism. So in Psalm 71, 74.1, for example, the psalmist says, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? The same kind of thing that we see in Psalm 79. But in Psalm 74, he goes on and he says, uh, he says, But you, O God, are my king from of old. You bring salvation upon the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the water. You established the sun and the moon. It was you who set all of the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. You see what he's doing? He's saying, Lord, I can't cope with all that I'm seeing right here. But you know, I do remember times in the past when it was really clear to me that you were real and that your goodness was abundant. And so I want to focus on those times. And I suggest that in times of doubt for us, we would do well to do the same. Many of us remember with great fondness the enthusiasm that we had if we had a dramatic conversion experience. You know, you just wanted to tell everyone about Jesus and you drove everybody nuts. But you were just on cloud nine. Well, that was a real experience when you tasted the grace of God. And so I want to suggest that it would, uh, it would do us well uh, to think about those past times. In fact, I was looking the other day at, uh, well, actually, a true confession. I was looking for illustrations for this point, okay? And I found in the journal called Neuron, volume 84, 2014, an article by Megan Spear and two others who have written an article called Savoring the Past. Positive memories evoke value representations in the striatum. I guess that's a part of your brain. But anyway, here's the abstract, and I think you'll see the point. Reminders of happy memories can bring back pleasant feelings tied to the original experience, suggesting an intrinsic value in reminiscing about the positive past. Our findings, they say, suggest that recalling positive autobiographical memories are intrinsically valuable for the emotions as well as for the well-being. 
So the scripture is, scripture is telling us what these uh, neuroscientists are telling us, that remembering good things from the past <laughs> is good for the body and is good for the mind and is good for the soul. And if you're going through a difficult time right now, I want to encourage you to do that. Many of you journal and find great comfort from journaling. A fellow named Cormac McCarthy wrote a novel in 1992 called All the Pretty Horses. And in it, he made the same point, only kind of the opposite. He said, scars have the strange power to remind us that our past is real. Scars have the strange power to remind us that our past is real. Well, so too. Those times we remember God's presence being very clear can remind us that despite what we're going through at the present, God is real and he has acted in the past and therefore he can be trusted in the present and the future. So the first point of the preacher is uh, recall God's past acts of mercy. The second point of the preacher tonight is repent by flirting carefully and only personally with the punishment possibility. Now, what does that mean? Well, this gets us into the thought possibility, and it was that the reason why she lay in ruins was because she had been disobedient to God's covenant. That's made clear in the psalms that lie in the neighborhood. In fact, in the preceding psalm, Psalm 78, uh, God recounts how time after time they rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statutes. Like their fathers, they were disloyal and faithless, as unreliable as a faulty bow. And it goes on to describe how they went to the high places and how they sinned against God obstinately and repeatedly. Well, I think a time when you're going through difficulty and a time when things aren't going well is a good time to ask yourself whether God might be trying to say something to you. And I want to say something that's not often said. It's possible that God is punishing you for your sins. Uh, now, we need to be careful here because that's not always the case, right? Uh, and we're certainly forbidden from ever supposing that somebody else's, uh, fall, somebody else's bad circumstances are the result of sin. Jesus taught us about that in Luke chapter 13. Let me read it very briefly, a couple of verses. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But then he goes on to say, But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Last week in Stephen Chester's sermon, twice he said, I think, don't go there. Well, if you're looking at somebody else's circumstances of ill and you're wondering, maybe God's punishing them for their sin, don't, don't go there, okay? That is, that, is, that, is, that is really bad. And there are some parts of the church where that is very common and it needs to be corrected. But it is fair to ask yourself, God, are you trying to tell me something? And I think according to Luke 13, the answer is, well, um, I am trying to tell you one thing. Here's a good time to repent. Here's a good time to get your house in order and to ask whether God is sort of uh, putting a megaphone of circumstances up to your ears and saying, I want you to listen. I'm trying to get your attention. So, three things. Recall God's merciful past. Repent by flirting carefully and only personally with the punishment possibility. 
as we learn in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. And thirdly, and somewhat more controversially, request God put things right. You'll notice in our psalm, Another point where we made of God a little bit uncomfortable, verse 6, pour out your wrath upon the nations who do not know you, upon the kingdoms who do not call by your name, for they have consumed Jacob and decimated his home. And again, uh, why should the heathen say, where is their God in verse 10? Let this be manifest among the nations in front of our eyes, recompense for the shed blood of your servants. Well, this reminds us a little bit of those psalms that make us extra uncomfortable, like the end of Psalm 137 or Psalm 58, which didn't make it even into the BCP. Well, some people have reminded us that Jesus' words in the Lord's Prayer are really not saying much different when you think about it. When Jesus teaches us to say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Rolls off our tongues, we say it all the time, but if you think about the implications of that, Whoa, uh, that is a nasty case of setting one's house in order. But should we still pray for the vindication of, uh, of God upon our enemies for our circumstances? Well, I think it's helpful to notice verse 9 and the tone that we see in verse 9, because I think it, it gives us some perspective. Help us, O God, of our salvation on account of the glory of your name. On account of the glory of your name, deliver us and atone our, our sins for the sake of your name. So here the psalmist and elsewhere the psalmist, I think is not so much calling for personal vengeance as they are saying, God, you know the injustice here and you're a God of justice. So set this right for your sake. Let me take a second and share with you the most helpful explanation that I know of for the so-called imprecatory psalms. And it's one that you don't find in the normal list. You see, uh, back in the Old Testament, there was very little emphasis upon the afterlife. So if a wicked person died without ever having anything uh, unfortunate happen to them, they died healthy, wealthy, rich, and happy, that was a problem because it appeared as though God was not just. You see, because we have an, um, a healthy understanding of the afterlife, we can say, well, now they know better or they got their just desserts. But back then, if somebody died um, without the justice of God appearing to having been unleashed upon them during their lifetime, well, that created a huge problem for you. It caused you to question the justice of God. So I think when the psalmists and others are crying out that God would vindicate uh, and God would set things right, as Tom Wright likes to say it, put things to the right, uh, we're really just asking for God to be God and for the, the notion that God is just to be made evident in the world. So here we have three ways, I suggest, maybe to cope, certainly to cope uh, with the cognitive dissonance between the things we face now as Christians, kingdom has come, but yet before the kingdom comes fully manifest. Remember the good times. Repent. Consider the possibility that this can be as a way of correcting you. And then ask God to put things right. Not to take things into your own hands, but to leave it at the feet of God, who is merciful, and say, Lord, this isn't right. I ask that you make it right, and make it right even for your own sake. 
Well, maybe you've been sitting here this afternoon thinking, oh, here's a sermon. Yeah, it's got lots of good ideas, I suppose, for what to do in the midst of um, bad circumstances. But I've been reading Psalm 79, and I can't see any hope here at all. The whole nation is destroyed. It's leveled. I mean, Jerusalem was leveled. The temple was destroyed. Uh, The implements from the temple were carried off to Babylon. I mean, zero was left. And so maybe this sounds a little pie in the sky. And I admit that there's a temptation to think that. But after all, we Christians are uh, spirit-endowed optimists. And I want to conclude by going back to the message of of the book of Psalms and by sharing something with you about what happens in the book of Psalms that is an encouragement to my faith. We're in book three, right? In book three, we still live with that cognitive dissonance. But let me remind you what happens at the end of book uh, three. And with that, I want, this is going to surprise you, uh, to reach uh, under your seat if you're sitting in the back row, uh, or to reach into that cubby where you store your hymn book and your BAS, and you'll find uh, the answer to what I'm uh, talking about. So it's under your seat. Yeah, just reach right under there. Yeah, you get a little piece of paper there. Yeah, you see? It's goody time, you know. It's, uh, why not enjoy church? Not a fortune cookie, a little piece of paper. You didn't see that one coming, did you? It's in the back row, you guys. If you just reach under the, reach under the I know Ephraim's saying, I know, I'm not doing this. Just forget it. It's just, it's just too corny. <laughs> All right. So I need to find it. I need to find it too. Yeah. Thanks, Yellow. I've got it here. Okay. In the underlined part is to me an exciting part of the book of Psalms. And um, I'll read it again. Uh, the part that we've already read. Although King David and his heirs often suffered, thus modeling life for us, and although the nation of Israel often underwent turmoil for her sins, a plot emerges according to which God's promise to his begotten son, the king of the Jews, will one day be fulfilled by a Davidic savior. And then listen to this. Uh, This is current Old Testament scholarship on the message of the book of Psalms. Who, after experiencing death as recounted in Psalms 88 and 89, and resurrection, when you compare 89 with 93. 93, by the way, comes three psalms after the Messiah appears to die in 89. So after three psalms. I know psalms aren't days. I'm working on it. But after three psalms, we get this declaration that it is Yahweh who rules. And Yahweh's rule is synonymous with the rule of the Messiah David, so that in the end the whole world will praise him. Well, what is my point? My point is that the writer of Psalm 79, he went to his grave just kind of thinking, I don't get it. We may go to our graves never being able to wrestle with the cognitive dissonance. But scripture itself, and I don't know how anybody could have anticipated this, I believe that our Lord saw this in the book of Psalms and was the fulfillment of the way that the story unfolds in the book of Psalms. Let me read it as Cole puts it. Psalm 88 ends on a hopeless note, but 89 declares that the dead of 88, including the Davidic speaker and many others, will rise eventually. 
It's a Davidic ruler, or if a Davidic ruler is to rule over such a kingdom, an unending life is required. For this reason, the final strophe of Psalm 89 concludes Book 3, asking who such an immortal could be and when he would appear. Then, as we move to Book 4, Psalm 90 still cries how long before the faithfulness to David is brought to fruition. And then comes Psalm 93, which begins the phrase, not David reigns, but Yahweh reigns. And it sounds like a new event, and so it is because Yahweh's long-awaited kingdom, proclaimed triumphantly in Book 4, is the same as that promise to David's descendant in answer to the repeated laments and cognitive dissonance of Book 3. Let all the house of Israel, said Simon Peter, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Despite the cognitive dissonance, despite the death of Jesus on the cross, what seemed to Simon Peter to be like Psalm 79, all hope is gone. In the end, God wins. And to him be praised now and forever. Amen.